The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. To help uh, continue the many conversations that have been happening formally and informally at the center around uh, our experience, all of our experience of um, living in this world with all of its beauty and all of its very real problems and ways that we're causing suffering, part of the suffering in the world. And that intersection with our Dharma practice, which we often feel is a, a turning inward and maybe away from the problems. But what what does that intersection look like between our practice and the world? So we asked uh, Satakara to introduce this conversation and facilitate this community conversation today. I'm really glad that he's here to do that. Many of you know that Satipara was a monk in Thailand for many years, and part of the monastic etiquette, especially in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, is that monks not get involved in worldly issues like the environment, like various social injustice issues. Um, but Satipara maybe didn't <laughs> hear that or I heard it, (laughs) but my teacher and I was part of a network of monks who considered that selfish, that that was a very self-serving, institutionalized attitude and not good dhamma. And I could explain the history behind that of government oppression and so on. But it's... Here it may not stand out as much, but in Thailand it, uh, it's a big deal to get involved in social issues um, as a monastic. And then since he's been a layperson for the last eight or so years, nine years now, uh, Satyakar has continued his interest in this intersection. So thanks so much, Satyakar. And then maybe you could say a little bit about Liberation Park before we end today for people who don't know. Uh, what's going on in southwestern Wisconsin. That might be nice okay. for people to hear. If I don't do it now, I'll forget. Okay. Should say, I do it yeah, now? Say a few words about what's going on at uh, Liberation Park. Okay, I'll do that and then give an overview of a rough idea what we might do for the next couple hours, and then we'll have a short sit. Okay? <clears throat> So um, my wife, Joe Marie, and I moved from Chicago up to southwest Wisconsin, just over three hours from here, uh, 30 miles east of the Mississippi. And we acquired what is now 70 acres of a little valley, mostly woods, but some prairie beautiful streams, some wetlands, a great field of wild mint, etc. And our aspiration is to take what was most important from Suen Mok, the Garden of Liberation, uh, my teacher's place, and figure out a way to not imitate, but adapt, translate the core values to life now, 
especially in the upper Midwest. And if you're curious, there's some stuff on our website. I've been trying to write some essays to explain some of the details about those values, one of which is there's no separation between so-called worldly and so-called spiritual. Those terms have some value. There's a useful distinction that often gets overplayed into rigidity that Mark touched on politely, and I'm less polite about it. That's just one strand of Suen Mok. At Liberation Park, we're small, we're relatively new, and we don't have a Buddhist culture to depend on, like in Thailand, nor to constrain us. There's two-edged swords to any form of support that one gets. And what we're aspiring to, a few key pieces, are <clears throat> providing what we're calling a Dharma refuge, loosely modeled on what we see as best in the Thai forest tradition, not retreat centers as they've developed around the world, but a place in nature where one studies, practices, trains with a lot of uh, flexibility and a, a big emphasis on self-responsibility. You're not there for a teacher to tell you what to do. You're there to practice, and a teacher is available for guidance or at least conversation. So we're less oriented towards group activities, though there will be some, generally small, because we don't want to invest in big facilities. Unfortunately, uh, Common Ground's developing a place which will do things a little different, but I see very complementary. And it's quite wonderful that um, Wisconsin's all of a sudden got <laughs> a lot happening at the same time our government goes down the drains. <laughs> Some things are hard to figure. But um, a few other pieces of what we're trying to do, we so far operate solely on Donna. We are, for the first time, doing a fundraising campaign, brochures, for a guest house that will, right now we have tents and one hermitage for people to stay in, but not very good bathing and cooking facilities, especially in winter. So we would like to build a building and to provide facilities for all that, and we're, we've raised about half the funds. We're pretty sure we're just over half, but we don't really know how much it'll cost. Uh, so that's a little bit. If you're curious, take a brochure. 
or check out the web, website liberationpark.org. Also, because I have to leave for Northfield right away, I won't be able to stick around afterwards today, just in case you had questions. But I'm happy to respond by email. So that's a bit on Liberation Park, maybe too much. The outline I've come up with for today is after a short sit, I'll give a, an introductory talk to offer a framework for conversation. It's a framework you're probably quite familiar with, and I'll be adapting it to today's uh, topic of the interdependence of social and personal transformation. And I'll try to highlight a few points that I think are very valuable for those of us who feel responsibility both for the intra, is it intra, personal, anyway, the inside change, as well as trying to contribute to dealing with some of the suffering going on around us on various levels, including global. After that, I will pose a conversation question and ask us to break into small groups to talk about that will take 30, 40 minutes for you all to talk in groups of four or five. Then we'll do report backs, have a break somewhere in there. And then after the reports, I'll start responding and we'll have a conversation till we either run out of steam or time. So that's my idea. It's pretty open so that you have a lot of say in where this goes. And I will take my opportunities to insert my opinions, as well as hopefully a knowledge that is deeper than just opinion. Okay? Shall we sit for a bit? I'm going to... Take a minute to say a little more about Liberation Park. Sorry, but I thought I was not very clear. Just a couple of things that we think are important that may be a little bit unique are, in addition to supporting personal meditation practice, we also consider living close to nature with the weather, the trees, the rocks, the streams, the bugs, that's a kind of practice as well, kind of in the forest tradition style. Third, we consider study a form or aspect of practice. And so the kind of retreats we encourage are a do-it-yourself mix of whatever proportions of meditation, simple living close to nature, study, 
as well as helping out, building, gardening, uh, stewardship, and so on. So, a little more on Liberation Park. We're here today to explore the interdependence of social and personal transformation. David Loy and I, with Doug McGill, were here last June to offer some things, and there was what seemed to me a very good uh, collective conversation and inquiry. Sounds like there have been more of these and I'm happy to try to contribute and facilitate a bit more today. This aspect of Dhamma practice has been important to me since I got involved in Buddhism, going back to my Peace Corps experience, and then my study with Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, who was... Uh, a leading engaged Buddhist in a certain way for many years. And I've been struggling to adapt that background to life here in America. So all of these are very uh, alive, ongoing things for me. Uh, and I believe there aren't many answers. So hopefully you're not hoping I'll provide any. But there are perspectives and there are tools for inquiry. And that's where I'd like to begin today. <clears throat> the social situations going on today seem to me very complex. And they bring up all kinds of emotions. The latest thing were the shootings in Paris, the so-called terrorist acts, and now I guess the French government has joined the war on terrorism, whatever that means. And there's all the complexities and emotions around that. There's our own society's involvement in places like Yemen, Afghanistan, our coddling of the Saudi Wahhabis, etc., etc., ISIS, our own, the militarization of our own society, and so on. There's what's what the things in this country that Ferguson has come to symbolize or catalyze, even though that stuff goes back hundreds of years, it's nothing new. There's climate change, the XL pipeline, the threatened veto, and on and on and on. How do we approach, respond to, the complexity of these things. I, I think a good starting point is to accept it's complex. I think one of the ways 
mainstream culture goes wrong is it tries to deny the complexity with simplistic answers. Who's right, who's wrong, left, right, Fox, blah, 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 NPR, democracy now. Actually, they're more nuanced usually than some of the others. For me, it's been very useful to accept it's complex. Nobody really knows. Even Noam Chomsky. And he's smart. And he re- he obviously reads a lot. It's not like Noam's got the answers. Let alone us. So accepting the complexity and, especially as a white guy who's been in a teaching role for years, Accepting the emotions. Uh, for me, it's very important. Climate change, the pervasive racism of our culture, the violence that is part of being American. That may apply to every society on the planet. I'm not claiming it's unique to us. But most of us here are Americans one way or another. To me, it's emotional, but my own background, white, middle class, college educated, trained to be a teacher, it's been easy to hide in rationalism. And so it's been valuable for me to not get lost in the emotions, but also not hide from them and not pretend There's a lot of fear, there's despair, there's depression, there's sadness, there's anger, there's rage, there's greed, hatred, envy, there's all kinds of stuff. And there's love, there's compassion, there's goodwill. Amidst this complexity and the emotions... I, I've keep training myself to come back to a very fundamental perspective or teaching of Buddhism, especially early or original Buddhism. This is the perspective And I'm going to highlight that it's a perspective or inquiry rather than a teaching. It is a teaching, but more important, it's a way of looking. It's in the Pali language, a diti. Diti has complex meanings, but one meaning is a way of viewing and seeing. And... Early Buddhism is full of these at the same time that it teaches not clinging to views, not fixing and rigidifying our ways of seeing. It's very tempting. I've, for years, had an anti-capitalist viewpoint, and it's often rigid and at times angry and slow. I keep learning to let go. And at the same time, come back to ways of viewing and seeing that help 
find some clarity, some footing, some and a place of compassion for facing and responding to what's going on, not just all around us, but inside of us. That's why I think copying to the emotions is important, especially for people with my background, including being a Buddhist monk. There's a lot of pressure to be kind of rational and deny emotion. It's hard. You're not allowed to be emotional in official uh, male Buddhism, monastic. It's not cool. You're supposed to be above that. So you got a lot of guys pretending they don't have emotions, pretending there's no anger, no fear, and yet you watch what they're doing. Anyway, that's another story. But that's part of the stuff I'm working on. So here are the perspectives I'd like to highlight today. They're known as the Arya Satcha, which you've probably heard translated as the Noble Truths. I'm not going to use that translation, but some alternatives. These are four ennobling realities. Satcha also means reality. So the point is not having our truth as much as a way to work at digging into what's the reality without assuming we've ever grasped it. That's hard if you come from a college-educated background where you're supposed to know stuff. If you're trained as a professional or a Buddhist teacher, you're supposed to know stuff. But often, we don't. So I prefer to see these ennobling realities as ways to keep exploring what is reality and and being careful, although I do it all the time, of thinking, I know. And of course, there's stuff I know, but what I know isn't always what's needed in the next situation, the next day, and so on. Arya can mean ennobling, that which makes us noble. Although the most likely translation is the satcha, the truth reality of the noble one, that is the Buddha. And these different meanings go together. They're noble truths. They're ennobling realities because they come from the awakened perspective, which is what Buddha means. Buddha is not about a person so much as a way of seeing, a way of seeing that consistently goes beneath surfaces to deeper layers of what's going on. And it's intimately grounded in compassion, not just rationalism or something. So I'd like to use the four Arya-satja, these realities penetrated by the Noble One and 
which can ennoble everyone who really engages with them. I'm going to phrase them as questions. This is something Ajahn Buddhadasa repeatedly did. Because as questions, they are tools for inquiry. And again, to highlight perspectives for trying to find some clarity, at least partial clarity, some footing to make wiser, more compassionate responses to what's going on inside us and around us. So first is, what is the dukkha? What's the dukkha? What's the suffering? What's the distress? What's the hurt that's going on around us and inside of us? I'm going to come back to this more. The second question is, where does it come from? What And we're not looking for a single, simplistic, silver bullet answer. Again, that's another dead end. But what are the processes feeding the suffering? Or the many forms of suffering, distress, pain, hurt? Third, this is a little more tricky, What is the end of the dukkha that we aspire to? Let me take a little more time on this one. Sometimes in the official record of the Buddha's teaching, it's phrased the end of suffering. Other times, the quenching of suffering. But there's an interesting play on the word end that works both in Thai English and I think in Pali. End, often first meaning is something's finished, it's over. But end also is like in Congress, wait, no, that's ways and means. When we talk about ends, ends also has a meaning of purpose that the end of something is also its meaning. And that's a useful way to reflect on the end of dukkha. Because it's a bit of a trap to only be thinking of dukkha as something I'm going to get rid of. That's often not the most useful approach. But to think of it in terms of, yes, Dukkha is something that ends. In fact, every kind of suffering keeps ending, but then the processes keep feeding it, so it keeps being reborn and dying over and over again. So there's that sense of end, but there's also a sense of purpose and meaning. So when we inquire into dukkha, we can inquire into, well, what is there to be learned, understood? Where is the growth or healing or whatever that's part of this package? 
so we we have a more richer, profound, nuanced investigation of the end of dukkha. It's not just getting rid of it. It's addressing it, coming to terms with it, learning from it, growing, and hopefully healing with it. And then the fourth Arya Satcha is about path, which is the how. As we gain clarity into the suffering, its causality, the processes that feed it, the end, purpose, meaning, then there's the question, how? What is the response? How do we respond to the forms of suffering that face us and challenge us and the processes that keep feeding these. This is a way of understanding the so-called Four Noble Truths and to use them to investigate what's going on in this interdependence of social and personal transformation. I'd like to go back to the first, the ennobling reality of dukkha. At first, suffering, it sounds like, what's ennobling about that? And on its own, maybe not much. But, Another way to understand dukkha is it's the universe, the system, the processes of change in life saying something needs to be learned here. Something needs to change. To me, it's the flashing red light. It's not merely something to get rid of. When we just want to get rid of it, we seldom learn. We take an aspirin, we avoid, we escape, turn on the TV, but we don't grow or heal. So, in our inquiry into dukkha, suffering, distress, What What is there for us to learn? For our conversation today, I want to work with this um, inquiry into dukkha for a couple reasons. One, if we do so skillfully, the so-called issues are both social and personal. It seems to me that starting with dukkha is a way to avoid pushing the issues away as merely social issues. Or in the traditional religious parlance, not just Buddhist, it's worldly. And somehow spiritual people don't enmesh themselves in worldly. Often that's just a cowardly cop-out. Or it's just people are hurting so much inside they're not ready to deal with it. 
and sometimes that's very real and we need a break to deal with the hurt inside. But skillfully, looking into dukkha is a way to bridge the gap. That, like one of the things I'm really feeling a need to step up to the plate with is racism and white privilege. And just to see it as dukkha for somebody else is to me a cop-out. I can't address that till I really own up to and explore my own dukkha, whether it's the anger I feel. You know, I thought I grew up in a, a civilized country, and I'm pissed off that we're so barbaric. I, sorry, I'll try to restrain myself. But at times, I really feel that. And I feel shame and guilt. And when I inquire into it, I feel stunted and trapped. And there's so much in my family we can't even talk about. And I, some um, of my friends, I have friends whose family is in Ferguson, by coincidence. And you just can't talk about so much. To me, that's dukkha. At home with so-called family, people we love, and yet important stuff we can't even talk about. To me, that's dukkha. Those are a few examples and maybe you feel my, my emotion uh, there. So to me, if we, with some mindfulness, not just vent emotion, but feel them, let them arise and pass, that's a way to to bridge the personal, the social. It's not one or the other in in my understanding. And by the way, most of what I'm saying, if you need me to quote discourses, I can dig up references, but that's just a scholarly game people play. But I can do it if needed. The second reason I want to focus on dukkha is that's where compassion arises. Without awareness and a a deep opening to the pain, there's no compassion. There's pity. There's helping others in an egoistic way. There can even be codependency. It's one of the ways, for example, back to the example I already raised, that white privilege operates. We're going to help somebody else and not so we can avoid copying to our own stuff. When we're touched by dukkha and where we, we drop the unnecessary dichotomy between my dukkha, your dukkha, their dukkha, and just keep opening ourselves to pain, hurt, violence, ugliness. That's where we find compassion, and I believe that's 
that's one of those most skillful ways to to deal this, with this stuff. And when we're really rooted in compassion, we can take care of ourselves much better. I've had years of experience with activists and activist burnout and activist infighting, as well as religious institutional infighting. It's debilitating. And so compassion seems to be necessary. And opening the dukkha is necessary for compassion. And that's just literal in the Buddhist understanding of dukkha. Dukkha is the wise response to suffering. Or, I'm sorry, compassion, karuna, is the wise desire and to do something about dukkha. So those are my opening comments. Next, I'd like to propose a conversation question. I think it's in the form of a question. Yep. And we'll break into groups of four or five and in our groups talk about it on a fairly personal level. And there will be a couple important ground rules. But here, I'll say the question once now, and I'll repeat it a couple times. So the question I'd suggest for us to start exploring today, or for many of us continue exploring, is... Where am I hurting? Where am I hurting regarding the dukkha, the suffering? And you can add, you know, violence, whatever synonyms, cognates you want to use. But where am I hurting regarding the dukkha in the world, in society? What I mean by this is there are so-called issues, series of events, whether it's the steady um, bad news about climate or the war reports about um, ISIS and before that Al-Qaeda and so on, or also the CIA, NSA type stuff. There are all these clusters of events, information, what we often call issues or maybe problems. So those are happening. But let's talk about them from the place of our own hurt, our own pain around these. I think it's, given our time, it'll be important for each of us to choose one. One issue, one cluster of information and events could be climate change. Uh, It 
could be suppression of the vote that's going on in states like Wisconsin, could be the dismantling and destruction of public education, could be racism. There are plenty to choose from. Pick one where you can access your own hurt around that. And that can be a starting place to talk about it. So I don't mean just talk about or especially wallow in your hurt, but talk about the hurt and the interaction between the pain we feel inside, whether it takes the form of fear, um, feeling unable to talk about stuff with your family, whatever it may be, fear, anger, um, and the suffering that's going on. In some cases, that suffering may be very directly impacting us, or it may be a little more distant, or I don't know. But please keep um, touching the hurts, emotions, and reactions concerning one of the issues of collective, social, or environmental dukkha, suffering. An important ground rule is, as each of us speaks, shares, this is not the time to solve any problems. One of the ways we short-circuit this is somebody jumps in to help. And um, often it's an older white guy who's got advice. Sometimes it's a woman. Um, but this isn't the time to solve anything. It's the time to inquire into dukkha. And if we don't let that happen, we'll never get enough clarity about it to do anything really useful. So I'm not saying don't try to think of solutions, but the next 45 minutes aren't the time for that. And some of us go their way too quick. And I talk about white guys because I fit that label and I'm one of the people who tends to give advice too quickly. Okay? I hope that wasn't advice. (laughs) It's more of a request. So, is that workable? I did a head count, though we might have lost one or two we're losing a few people, so real quick, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Welcome back. <laughs> like to do a quick check-in question, pretty quick, um, just to see was the question I proposed useful, i.e., did you stick with it very long? If you abandoned it quickly, then you didn't find it useful. Um, But if you kept coming back to it, was it a good starting point? Was it 
helpful. Anybody with the opposite view? Experience? Okay, good. Don't have to radically start over. Although that's doable if needed. So what I was thinking is at least some of us, there won't be time for everyone, but if some of us would like to share maybe a little more concisely, because it'll be the second time, what you what you had to say in your group. And if three or four of us do that, then we can start opening up um, a larger conversation. And I'll start by listening, and eventually I'll have some inputs, if you allow me. So would a few, and and maybe if, um, let's say somebody talks about their dukkha related to climate change, then the next person would be something other than climate change. Just so we don't repeat the same, unless everybody talked about climate change, which I believe is not the case. Would Somebody be willing to tell us what's up with you, what's hurting? I'd like to make a slight twist on your request to answer a little more broadly for what came out of Though I'm asking to speak for yourself, not for the group. Um, for example, I articulated my concern over environmental destruction, and others in the group were about split between societal concerns and individual concerns. So, what was unifying among us was that perhaps our biggest problem is the lack of honest acknowledgement that none of us has the answers. That no matter which specific societal or individual problem we're talking about, an awful lot of discourse in society is between or among people who assume that they basically have the correct view and in essence could lead us out of the woods if we would only listen to them. And what our group evolved to pretty quickly is we don't believe that that these problems are complex, as we articulated, no matter which one you pick, and that no one has an on-the-shelf solution. The, the most useful thing we could do, right off the bat, would be collectively honestly acknowledge that situation and work constructively together to try to find violence. And what's your personal dukkha around that? Are you pissed off? Are you scared? Are you drinking yourself to sleep every night? All of the above. I can get sufficiently discouraged so that I'm not sure where to put my energy. Um, that could be one response. And another is confusion. 
Um, but we also touched on that a bit and said, you know, the most rational response to that really is compassion. That none of us know that we're all confused. And really the most constructive and rational response to that is compassion. I don't always get there, but I believe that. And sometimes it's Thanks. Um, my own personal feel-good in relation to a lot of larger what's happening um, is something that went around our group is, is Parkinson. Um, and the anger or the compassion that, that surrounds this idea about the expendability of black lives. Um, and for my own personal sense, it's looking where that expendability or the changes and shift within how racism occurs in our country, um, where does that happen? And how that relates to me personally is last week being laid off um, for a position within a department that's committed to diversity, um, but then having to be an unjust termination that has some racialized motivations behind it and having to begin an investigation process into that termination. Um, and the, the idea of it, the termination being by a supervisor who's an older white woman, um, but this idea that as women we could connect with each other is not sufficient enough when they, they see you as threatened based off of these stereotypic ideas about black womanhood um, and how to work together in terms of doing diversity or equity work when you came to see each other as equals based off your different identities. Um, I really try to figure out how to position myself in doing um, that kind of community-based intersectional work um, because that's a real Real reality for a lot of women of color. People of color have moved within predominantly white or marsh or dominant spaces, um, and you don't have that proof. You don't have someone having a cross outside their house or saying, I'm doing this action for you because you're of this background. Racism is much more subtle now. It's turned or clouded in microaggressions or micromanagement, and it's more difficult to. to really kind of make visible. And and knowing that both exist, you have the police that's outright shooting people of color in the streets, but you also have that crazy supervisor who makes like a living hell within a job. Um, and knowing they have the powers that dangle that over you. Mm -hmm. And how to navigate between those spaces. And still at the end of the day, want to commune with people who claim to want to be about social justice work. When they really know, or don't right. really know what that means. So I could guess, maybe from, but can you name how that feels? The the kind of inner dukkha that is for you. Inner dukkha has been a lot of confusion, a lot of anger, some compassion for trying to understand her side. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to figure out my response 
and knowing that this is also a lived reality for many other people who look like me, mm-hmm. and whose experiences are just violent. Um, and, and a lot of confusion around next steps for that. Thanks. My duke is around violence. And, um, you know, the bigger picture, of course. Elena, would you shut the fan off? It's the middle, I think the middle switch on the bottom. So my duke is around violence, and, um, the, the bigger picture would be what happened in France, and that's just the latest. And, um, stripped down to the personal level of it, um, experiencing it on a very personal level. I don't know if I need to get into the details. I don't know how much you need from me. It's not what I need. It's more what you want or need to share. What I'm experiencing is um, a very personal violence of an attacker going on for 14 months and the outcome of a close friend being killed during this. And um, But there's this real uh, loss of safety within what I thought was a protective police legal system and coming face to face with the police may mean well, but they don't know what to do. The lawyers mean well, but they don't know what to do. Judges mean well, but they don't know what to do. I've contacted the attorney general. Very sweet lady I talked to, but doesn't know what to do. And there's such a loss of safety and an expectation of what protect and serve meant to me growing up. And it's, um, you know, it's very raw for me right now because I'm still living this and I'm grieving and there's a lot of mixed stuff going on. But uh, when I hear about things, the situation in France, when I hear about shootings, when I hear about all this, I can touch it in such a visceral understanding of the pain. We're all involved, including the perpetrator. <laughs> Imagine that. And, uh, and how we just don't know. We don't know what to do. Also, you mentioned about the sympathy and the empathy thing. And that's another thing I've been tapping into is, uh, There's a lot of sympathy out there, well-meaning, but the empathy, not always, but most of the time, comes from those who understand a lot of fear, a lot of people who don't want to hear it, and that's their pain. And uh, I don't know, it's interesting how this can sometimes pile and be so personal and so... Like, I just want to shut down and protect myself. But then, it can also be so opening to where 
I like really get what's going on in France on such a deep level right now. And like everyone else, I don't know what to do. And I have to be okay with that. Thank you. Maybe one more. Um, for me, I think of like it's kind of like topside world, mining, deforestation, immediate kind of things that seem immediate threats to the environment. Uh, I, I feel like they, you know, the things that feed uh, climate change. I kind of feel that, yeah, that our whole fixation on carbon, we're forgetting how many toxins have to be released into the environment to, to make carbon an issue. Oh, um, anyway, I feel my dukkha is this immediate visceral, uh, over the years it's mellowed out a little bit, but it used to be a murderous rage, you know, um, because it's so, Unfathomable to me. Some of the, for example, I mentioned um, working with Earth First out west, so around big trees and um, different wilderness campaigns, and, and seeing like two thousand year old trees being cut down to me, it just seemed unfathomable. Like the, the life force that's present there, and um, you know, I was uh, much more misanthropic back then in my early twenties. And, uh, and, you know, I put a much higher value on, uh, an old growth tree than I did the people who were cutting them down. Um, but it's still, like the whole tar sands thing, you know, that, like I read about that, it's, it's, it's a very, like, it's very mixed. You know, I worked with, doing med practice with some of these, uh, Proponents for for mountaintop removal or or for strip mining up in Alberta or or something like that and and so it's 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 not as definitive like the anger is and you know there's still anger there but it's um it's not directed it's just kind of I feel I think I feel compassion for my anger and so it's it's like it's okay we don't need to bury it. Uh, but we don't need to direct it to somebody else. We don't need to uh, then direct it back to ourselves for being a part of the problem. Or um, you know, it's just this kind of anger. It's just there. Thanks. I have a couple comments I'd like to make, and then maybe we'll see where things go from there. Is that I'm going to speak to anger partly because it's been a big deal for me, and I lived in a culture where anger was taboo, especially if you're a monk in Thailand. The worst thing you can do is, it's, it's very, um, immature 
and bad to get angry in Thailand, unless you're in certain privileged positions. Like bosses can get angry, but not employees. And then the idealized image of a monk, they would never get angry. And I got angry, so <laughs> I have issues around that I'm still working on. Um, one thing I heard quite a while ago that I didn't accept at first because I was still influenced by anger is a taboo, you know. A good Buddhist shouldn't get angry kind of thing is that anger is the natural response when we feel threatened. And that, to me, it can be a, a useful inquiry. Like, when we get angry, how is it we feel threatened? Like, those trees, the old growth, it's not directly affect threatening you, maybe. Maybe it is. But somehow we're, we're feeling threatened and like I, I get angry about what I see as the dismantling of democracy. I think democracy's always been shaky. And my own inquiry is that I bought into all the ideals of social studies class growing up. You know, and I know most of our government propaganda, even on NPR, the Wisconsin Public Radio, they've got this spot they keep repeating, makes me puke. But, you know, oh, America, we care about human rights. Well, yeah, sometimes. And anyway, that's not democracy, but in my mind, it's the same, uh, same pretense. And for me, part of it at least is I bought into these ideals. Democracy to me is still beautiful. I care about it. And so that's threatening to me, not physically, but emotionally there's a value I hold around, in this case, the example I'm using, but it applies to many things where I'm not directly affected, or at least I don't see that I am. Other things like um, racism or medical care, I feel more directly impacted. But So I, that's one perspective I wanted to put out there that... So partly it's... Um, like you said, have compassion for, in this case, anger. But it could be fear. It could be, I heard somebody mention numbness or just wanting to be a hermit, just, you know, close the door, turn off the TV. That's often a good idea anyway. But, you know, we just don't want to hear anymore, know anymore. So much judging happens in our own minds and around us, around what are just feelings. It's just human. It's not good or bad. Later, Buddhist inquiry will go into, you know, is it wholesome? Is it supporting liberation for ourselves and others? Or is it 
entrapping us. But we can't do that inquiry unless there's some basic openness, acceptance, and compassion, even for things that Buddhism labels destructive, like anger. And I still believe anger is generally destructive, but starting there, I've found very unhelpful. It's a place to get to, maybe, but I've had to learn to go, oh, yeah, I'm angry. And sometimes there's a pretty good reason for it. It doesn't mean I want to stay angry. But when I've denied my my anger, it's just shut me down. There's even a chance it had a role in getting cancer. <laughs> uh, somebody was, where'd she go? There, we were having a talk about that during the break. So anyway, that's um, one comment I wanted to make. Another comment, observation, and it's appreciation and respect for those who spoke, just the four of you, but also everyone. It takes courage to admit, you know, if to the extent we've bought into the, I call it white, though it's not always about white skin, but if we've bought into whiteness, the sort of American paradigm of middle class success fitting in. It was interesting, one of the groups I heard, there was the dukkha of feeling you're always an outlier, you don't fit in. Because you're supposed to fit in, right? That's part of, there's a whole history of being white is about fitting in. And, you know, the way women have had to fit with the male paradigms and so on. There's a kind of mainstream and you're supposed to assimilate. So when I talk about whiteness, it's that whole package. Um, And part of that package is not being emotionally vulnerable. It's not admitting to yourself, let alone to others, that actually you hurt. And so I just want to, I want to acknowledge the courage and the honesty it takes, which means it's practice. It's an important Dhamma practice to, with some mindfulness and stability and compassion, admit and talk about in a constructive way anger or fear or depression or sadness or despair or being numb or whatever it may be. And the respect that goes with that when we give the same space to others. So that's something I want to acknowledge. And then this leads me to a question which might be a a step from the first question I posed. And it came from listening to one of the groups and hopefully it's relevant for all the groups. My question is, and I'm addressing this to individuals, not 
a collective. The collective maybe can emerge, but individually for right now, where can we risk our ego defenses? The, the kind of defense that just wants to shut out information. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental that that's a bad thing. I'm just, it, it happens. And it also seems to me some of those ego defenses are where we might be able to embrace some risk. Because when we work with our ego defenses and anger, fear, all of this involves some kind of ego defense, including rationalism. To go to rationalism is an ego defense. It's in the, and it's very big in the whiteness, you know, male whiteness. You, you go rational, get abstract, talk in broad principles. Uh, so are we, my question, if I get to it, is where might each of us be ready and able to risk an ego defense for the sake of deeper growth. So just in listening, I'm thinking if we take this inquiry another step, as we open up or tap into and look into the own, the pain we feel, the pain we feel, you know, we're, we're seeing it, we're hearing it, we're picking it up from outside, but there's also the pain in our responses. And then I'm wondering, is is this another step to find our healthy responses to ask, what ego defense am I ready right now to risk? Not trash or necessarily abandon. It's usually not that easy. They don't just go away because we want them to. But at least one, we're willing to be challenged. That we can take some risk there. Again, this is courage and faith and um, compassion in order to allow some deeper growth and healing in ourselves. And since we're framing this today, not just on the personal level, but how our dukkha is connected with these bigger, more collective, social, environmental, global dukkhas. So that healing personally is also in relationship to responding to something collective. So it's not just a little isolated dukkha, but... That's a question that occurred to me in listening to one of the groups. Here I'm taking pain as a symptom. Earlier I called it the flashing red light. And a symptom is not something to get rid of. That's one of the ways modern medicine sometimes goes too far. Get rid of symptoms, but not deal with underlying causes. 
At least that's a Buddhist critique. I know there's one doctor in the room. Um, hopefully I haven't been offensive. The Buddhist approach is to keep digging into the processes, the causality underlying the pain. And so, again, it's not about getting rid of the pain, but learning from the pain. But it's not. We don't want to just keep learning from pain forever. (laughs) Uh, Some of it eventually can be pain is impermanent, so it can pass. So those are some comments and a question. What what might we be able to risk? And if it feels risky, ego's involved. That goes without saying. And I'm not saying you have to risk everything and be a hero and all that poppycock. Because most of us can't. But there are the small, there are the risks that are big enough we can tangle. This is partly a way to talk about the overwhelm and despair many of us feel. It's just too big. So this is my attempt to bring it to something, a way to find something where we're, we've, we can do something. What do you think of that? <laughs> uh, oppositional defiance. I have, have this oppositional defiance to like. That's your ego defense. Yeah. One of them. If you know, if somebody is an expert in um, in some, some you know trained through the uh, academia. Part of the I'm a poly scholar, and right? Immediately, it's like, it's like, no, you don't know because you're one of them, or, um, um, right? Yeah, and that, that's kind of where I go right away. Like, oh, wait a minute, uh, you were trained to think that way, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're saying that's something you could begin to, or maybe you have yeah, been yeah. softening. So that you can also be more constructively engaged on issues that are beyond my personal stuff. We don't need to throw the baby out of the bathwater. You know, we can have a conversation. Great. Um, I remember I had tremendous anger for the police, the lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, for begging for help for months, and then it resulted in my friend's death. And the anger was <laughs> unbelievable. I told you. I knew it. You should have listened. Um, but, you know, I sat with that till it got so ugly that I couldn't hold it anymore. And that's when I realized they just don't know either. And then the compassion was able to... And it is so much freer to not have that anger. Mm-hmm. To, to know that you know what they don't know either, and maybe that's okay. They did what they could, but it, but it's it's hard because there's this loss of well, who knows who can help. There's that wanting somebody to be able to do something. 
And I see that with the global warming. I see that with all of this. There's just, we all just, isn't there anybody that can help that knows? There's that pull still. Well, one reason this question about relaxing part of our ego defense is like um, to go back to the, like in New York, Eric Garner, or Milwaukee, the cop who was off duty and killed somebody. Um, sometimes the cops know they're making choices. And the politicians are making choices, and the electorate is electing these politicians and the judges. Choices are being made, and it, knowledge might be part of it, but a, a piece that comes out of Buddha's perspective is all these people are protecting things. And how can we interact with them? Well, in a, in a way, they're us. We're all protecting. And so it seems to me part of developing some skill in working on these things is learning to risk some of our own ego defenses so we have some insight into how other people might, like the police union in New York, at least the president, who's just rallying around the cops and the cops don't want to be questioned. That's collective ego defense. And they're not willing to look at, wait, we got a serious problem. People are being killed. So that's part of what's behind my question. So that, one, we can have compassion, like the cops in New York. There's similarities with me. It's not just them. It's it's me as well. Then I can be more compassionate and understanding. But at the same time, hey, wait, something stinks. Yeah, or in your friend's murder, or a friend of mine who was murdered and Powerful people were behind it, and it's never going to be properly investigated. Actually, the investigator who was investigating was taken off the case. This is in Thailand. So, yes? Um, I'm responding to your ego defense. It's something I've been playing with um, for a while, and this actually comes from one of the things that Philip Moffat says, is I'm really playing with um, my need to be right and trying to let go of my need to be right. And that's a, I mean, it can just, there's many, so many levels there. And I can watch how, in certain situations, it's particularly triggered. Um, very strong patterns in the family, um, where there's almost an, almost a knee-jerk, I'm going to respond to this, you know, I'm, I'm, without even thinking. So mm-hmm. that's a, been a pretty fruitful Yep. Great. I have comments, but I'm going to shut up for a while just to give space for whoever has anything to say. (laughs) Oh, okay. One or two more comments, and I'm going to run out the door. (laughs) 
similar to what Louise was saying. I, I, I believe that if I do or say things right, it will go smoothly. It will be useful. And that was one of the things we talked about in our, in our small group, that um, sometimes we believe that if we're doing it just right, all go smooth, everyone will be happy, no one will be hurt, <laughs> and there will be a fruitful outcome. And I, it's very interesting to watch that because uh, what I've been working on is, or what, what has happened historically for me is, if I'm not sure I'm right or that I can be skillful, I'll do nothing. Yeah. So to practice just being <laughs> and not sure I'm right mm -hmm. or because it's a trap. You can get into kind of the technocrat. You know, I'm going to be an expert at NVC, nonviolent communication. So I, you know, yeah. yeah. Nora? Um, say another defense um, boundary for me is around safety. That there's so many places where I don't feel safe. And my question does not imply we should force something on ourselves that we're not ready for, but find find the ones that you know we're on the cusp of that it's It'll be a challenge, but it's doable. That's where growth happens. Growth doesn't happen with the stuff that's too much, nor repeating the stuff that's easy. I think for me, uh, at one point I feel really uh, strongly, uh, I have to express myself very strongly in certain forms in certain ways. And I think it's having, uh, and over time I've backed off knowing that I was very unscriptive in the way I, I express myself. And I think it's again relearning to kind of re-express myself in a way, knowing that, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not always, I mean, it's, I, I mean, I sense that it was part of the reason why I backed off was wanting to be accepted and wanting to be seen as a nice person. And being able to, I think now again, express myself in that way. I may not always be skillful, I may kind of be very, uh, sometimes aggressive in the way I express myself. And being able to do that in a way despite that. Mm -hmm. And despite the confusion. And, uh, and uh, again, it's the same thing. And knowing that, knowing very clearly that I'm not right, I don't have a good picture. And despite that, I have to kind of say what it is true for me. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I think it's important to recognize that the, the structures of domination take advantage of what you're talking about to silence. And certain people can be as angry and as rude and whatever as they want. And then, but others, they shut you down. And some of us are in the middle, and some of us are, you know, 
it, the system really will hit hit hard. So, so I'm I'm gonna have to go. <laughs> but from what you just said, what um, at least where my mind is going right now. Earlier, I mentioned courage. We've talked about compassion. You and others who are speaking about not knowing, humility. So, in a way, it's a simple message, but I think it's still profound to keep coming back to basic dhammas. Dhamma can mean virtues. There are these just basic human virtues, courage, compact, real courage, not get a gun and go to war courage, but real courage, humility, not fake stuff, but real humility, real compassion, real honesty. So, more and more, I feel, this is where I'm kind of at right now, that all my efforts to figure stuff out haven't helped that much. And where I'm going to find strength is in these basic virtues, which Buddhism honors, but they're by no means owned, or they're not Buddhist, they're human, or whatever. Okay. Thank you. And thank, thank you all for coming. I hope this was a little bit of support for these struggles we're all enjoying or whatever the right word for it is. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.